Chapter Twenty Eight of Love Affairs of the Courts of Europe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Casey E. Kennard. Love Affairs of the Courts of Europe by Thornton Hall. Chapter Twenty Eight. An Ill-Fated Marriage. Few kings have come to their thrones under such brilliant auspices as Milan I of Servia. Few have abandoned their crowns to the greater relief of their subjects, or have been followed to their exile by so much hatred. But a fortnight before Milan's ascension, his cousin and predecessor, Prince Michael, had been foully done to death by hired assassins as he was walking in the park of Topscheider with three ladies of his court and the murdered man had been placed in a carriage, sitting upright as in life, and had been driven back to his palace through the respectful greetings of his subjects, who little knew that they were saluting a corpse. There was good reason for this mockery of death, for Prince Alexander Karagargovich had long set ambitious eyes on the crown of Servia, and resolved to wrest it by fair means or foul from the boy heir to the throne, and it was of the highest importance that Michael's death, which he had so brutally planned, should be concealed from him until the succession had been secured to his young rival, Milan. And thus it was that before Karagargovich could bring his plotting to the head of achievement, Milan was hailed with acclamation as Servia's new prince, and on the 23rd June, 1868, made his triumphal entry into Belgrade to the jubilant ringing of bells and the thunderous cheers of the people. Twelve days later Belgrade was on fate for his crowning, her streets ablaze with bunting and floral decorations, as the handsome boy made his way through the tumults of cheers and avenues of fluttering handkerchiefs to the Metropolitan Church. The men, we are told, took off their cloaks and placed them under his feet that he might walk on them. They clustered round him, kissing his garments, and blessing him as their very own. They worshipped his handsome face and loved his boyish smile. And when his young voice rang clearly out in the words, I promise you that I shall, to my dying day, preserve faithfully the honour and integrity of Servia, and shall be ready to shed the last drop of my blood to defend its rights. There was scarcely one of the enthusiastic thousands that heard him who would not have been willing to lay down his life for the idolized prince. It was by strange paths that the fourteen-year-old Milan had thus come to his principality. The son of Hefren Obrenovich, uncle of the reigning Michael, he was cradled one August day in 1854, his mother being Marie Cartargo of the powerful race of Romanian hospodars a woman of strong passions and dissolute life. When her temper and infidelities had driven her husband to the drinking that put a premature end to his days, Marie transferred her affection, without the sanction of a wedding-ring, to Prince Cusa, a man of as evil repute as herself. In such a home, and with such guardians, her only child Milan, the future ruler of Servia, spent the early years of his life ill-fed, neglected, and supremely wretched. Thus it was that when Prince Michael summoned the boy to Belgrade in order to make the acquaintance of his successor, 
he was horrified to see an uncouth lad as devoid of manners and of education as any in the slums of his capital the heir to the throne could neither read nor write the only language he spoke was debased romanian picked up from the servants who had been his only associates while of the land over which he was to rule one day he knew absolutely nothing the only hope for him was his extreme youth he was at the time only twelve years old and michael lost no time in having him trained for the high station he was destined to fill the progress the boy made was amazing within two years he was unrecognizable as the half-savage who had so shocked the court of belgrade he could speak the servian tongue with fluency and grace he had acquired elegance of manners and speech and a winning courtesy of manner which to his last day was his most marked characteristic he had mastered many accomplishments and he excelled in most manly exercises from riding to swimming and to all this remarkable promise the finishing touches were put by a visit to paris under the tutorship of a courtly and learned professor thus when within two years of his emancipation he came to his crown the uncouth lad from romania had blossomed into a prince as goodly to look on as any europe could show a handsome boy of courtly graces and accomplishments able to converse in several languages and singularly equipped in all ways to win the homage of the simple people over whom he had been so early called to rule as mrs gerard says they idolized their boy prince every day they stood in long closely packed lines watching to see him come out of the castle to ride or drive as he passed along smiling affectionately on his people blessings were showered on him there was however another side to this picture of devotion there were those who hated the boy because he had thwarted their plans and this hatred as persistent as it was malignant was to follow him throughout his reign and through his years of unhappy exile to his grave but these days were happily still remote after four years of minority and regency when he was able to take the reins of government into his own hands his empire over the hearts of his subjects was more firmly based than ever his youth his modesty and his compelling charm of manner made friends for him wherever his wanderings took him from paris to constantinople he was the prince charming of europe as popular abroad as he was idolized at home and when the time arrived to find a consort for him he might one would have thought have been able to pick and choose among the fairest princesses of the continent but handsome and gallant and popular as he was the overtures of his ministers were coldly received by one royal house after another milan might be a reigning prince and a charming one to boot but it was not forgotten that the first of his line had been a common herdsman and the blood of Habsburgs and Hohenzollerns could not be allowed to mingle with so base a strain. Even a mere Hungarian count, whose fair daughter had caught Milan's fancy, frowned on the suit of the swineherd's successor. But fate had already chosen a bride for the young prince, who was more than equal in birth to any count's daughter, who would bring beauty and riches as her portion and who after many unhappy years was to crown her dower with tragedy 
It was at Nice, where Prince Milan was spending the winter months of 1875, that he first set eyes on the woman whose life was to be so tragically linked with his own. Among the visitors there was the family of a Russian colonel, Nathaniel Ketchko, a man of high lineage and great wealth. He claimed, in fact, descent from the royal race of Komnenos, which had given many a king to the thrones of Europe, and whose sons for long centuries had won fame as generals, statesmen, and ambassadors. And to this exalted strain was allied enormous wealth, of which the colonel's share was represented by a regal revenue of four hundred thousand roubles a year. But proud as he was of his birth and his riches, Colonel Nathaniel was still prouder of his two lovely daughters, each of whom had inherited in liberal measure the beauty of their mother, a daughter of the princely house of Sturza, and of the two the more beautiful, by common consent, was Natalie, whose charms won this spontaneous tribute from Tsar Nicholas when first he saw her. I would I were a beggar that I might every day ask your alms and have the happiness of kissing your hand. She had, says one who knew her in her radiant youth, an irresistible charm that permeated her whole being with such a harmony of grace, sweetness, and overpowering attraction that one felt drawn to her with magnetic force and to adore her seemed the most natural and indeed the only position. Such was the high tribute paid to Servia's future queen at the first dawning of that beauty which was to make her also queen of all the fair women of Europe, and which at its zenith was thus described by one who saw her at Wiesbaden ten years or so later. She walked along the promenade with a light, graceful movement. Her feet hardly seemed to touch the ground, her figure was elegant, her finely cut face was lit up by those wonderful eyes, once seen, never forgotten. Brilliant, tender, loving. Her luxuriant hair of raven black was loosely coiled round the well-set head, or fell in curls on the beautifully arched neck. For each one she had a pleasant smile, a gracious bow, or a few words, spoken in a musical voice. No wonder the Germans, who looked at this apparition of grace and beauty, simply fell down and adored her. Such was the vision of beauty of which Prince Milan caught his first glimpse on the promenade at Nice in the winter of 1875, and which haunted him day and night, until chance brought their paths together again, and he won her consent to share his throne. That such a high destiny awaited her, Natalie had already been told by a gypsy whom she met one day in the woods of her father's estate near Moscow, a meeting of which the following story is told. At sight of the beautiful young girl, the gypsy stooped in homage and kissed the hem of her dress. "'Why do you do that?' asked Natalie, half in alarm and half in pleasure. "'Because,' the woman answered, "'I salute you as the chosen bride of a great prince.' Over your head I see a crown floating in the air. It descends lower and lower until it rests on your head. A dazzling brilliance adorns the crown. It is a royal diadem. What else? asked Natalie eagerly, her face flushed with excitement and delight. Oh, do tell me more, please. What more shall I say, continued the gypsy, except that you will be a queen and the mother of a king, but then... But then what? exclaimed the eager and impatient girl. 
you go on, please. What then? And she held out a gold coin temptingly. I see a large house. You will be there, but take care. You will be turned out by force. And now give me the coin and let me go. More I must not tell you. Such were the dazzling and mysterious words spoken by the gypsy woman in the Russian forest, a year or more before Natalie first saw the prince who was destined to make them true. But it was not at Nice that opportunity came to Milan. It was an accidental meeting in Paris some months later that made his path clear. During a visit to the French capital he met a young Servian officer, a distant kinsman, one Alexander Konstantinovich, who confided to him, over their wine and cigarettes, the story of his infatuation for the daughter of a Russian colonel, who at the time was staying with her aunt, the Princess Morosi. He raved of her beauty and her charm, and concluded by asking the prince to accompany him that he might make the acquaintance of the lieutenant's bride-to-be. Arrived at their destination, the prince and his companion were graciously received by the Princess Marusi, but Milan had no eyes for the dignified lady who gave him such a flattering reception. They were drawn as by a magnet to the girl by her side, a child with a woman's grace and an angel's soul smiling in her eyes, the incarnation of his dreams, the very girl whose beauty, though he had caught but one passing glimpse of it, had so intoxicated his brain a few months earlier at Nice. "'Allow me,' said the lieutenant, "'to introduce to your highness Natalie Ketchko, my affianced wife.' Milan's face flushed with surprise and anger at the words. What was this trick that had been played on him? Had Konstantinovich then brought him here only to humiliate him? But before he could recover from his indignation and astonishment, the princess said chillingly, "'Pardon me, Monsieur Konstantinovich, you are not speaking the truth. My niece, Colonel Ketchko's daughter, is not your affianced wife. You are too premature.' Thus rebuffed, the lieutenant was not encouraged to prolong his stay, and Milan was left reassured to bask in the smiles of the princess and her lovely niece, and to pursue his wooing under the most favorable auspices. This first visit was quickly followed by others, and before a week had passed the prince had won the prize on which his heart was set, and with it a dower of five million roubles. Now followed halcyon days for the young lovers, long hours of sweet communion, of anticipation of the happy years that stretched in such a golden vista before them. It was a love idol, such as delighted the romantic heart of Paris, and congratulations and presents poured on the young couple, the very beggars in the streets, we are told, blessing them as they drove by. Happy is the wooing that is not long a-doing, and Milan's wooing was as brief as it was blissful. He was all impatience to possess fully the prize he had won. Preparations for the nuptials were hastened, but before the crowning day dawned, once more the voice of warning spoke. A few days before the wedding, as Milan was leaving the Marusi palace, he was accosted by a woman who craved permission to speak to him, a favor which was smilingly accorded. "'I know you,' 
said the woman thus permitted to speak although you do not know me you are the prince of servia i am a servant in the house of the princess morosi your highness listen i love natalie i have known and loved her since she was a child and i beg of you not to marry her such a union is doomed to unhappiness you love to rule to command so does natalie and it is she who will be the ruler you are utterly unsuited for each other and nothing but great unhappiness can possibly come from your union to this warning milan turned a smiling face and a deaf ear as natalie had done to the voice of the gypsy a fig for such gloomy prophecy they were ideally happy in the present and the future should be equally bright however ravens might croak thus one october day in eighteen seventy five vienna held high holiday for the nuptials of the handsome prince and his beautiful bride and it was through avenues densely packed with cheering onlookers that natalie made her triumphal progress to the altar in her flower-garlanded dress of white satin a tiara of diamonds flashing from the blackness of her hair no brighter than the brilliance of her eyes her face irradiated with happiness that no royalty graced their wedding was a matter of no moment to milan and natalie whose happiness was thus crowned and when at the subsequent banquet milan said i wish from my very heart that every one of my subjects as well as everybody i know could be always as happy as i am this moment none who heard him could doubt the sincerity of his words or see any but a golden future for so ideal a union of hearts by servia her young princess was received with open arms of welcome her reception we are told was beyond description the festivities lasted three days and during that time the love of the people for their prince and their admiration of the beauty and charm of his bride were beyond words to describe never did royal wedded life open more full of bright promise and never did consort make more immediate conquest of the affections of her husband's subjects no one could have believed that this marriage which was contracted from love and love alone would have ended in so tragic a manner or that hate could so quickly have taken the place of love but the serpent was quick to show his head in natalie's new paradise before she had been many weeks a wife stories came to her ears of her husband's many infidelities now the story was of one lady of her court now of another until the horrified princess knew not whom to trust or to respect strange tales too came to her mostly anonymously of milan's amours in paris in vienna and half a dozen of his other haunts of pleasure until her love poisoned at its very springing turned to suspicion and distrust of the man to whom she had given her heart other disillusions were quick to follow she discovered that her husband was a hopeless gambler and spendthrift spending long hours daily at the card tables watching with pale face and trembling lips his pile of gold dwindle as it usually did to its last coin and often losing at a single sitting a month's revenue from the civil list her own dowry of five million roubles she knew was safe from his clutches her father had taken care to make that secure but milan's private fortune 
large as it had been, had already been squandered in this and other forms of dissipation, and even the expenses of his wedding, she learned, had been met by a loan raised at ruinous interest. Such discoveries as these were well calculated to shatter the dreams of the most infatuated of brides, and less was sufficient to rouse Natalie's proud spirit to rebellion. When affectionate pleadings proved useless, reproaches took their place. Heated words were exchanged, and the records tell of many violent scenes before Natalie had been six months Princess of Servia. "'You love to rule,' the warning voice had told Milan. "'To command. So does Natalie.' And already the clashing of strong wills and imperious tempers, which must end in the yielding of one or the other, had begun to be heard. If more fuel had been needed to feed the flames of dissension, it was quickly supplied by two unfortunate incidents. The first was Milan's open dallying with Fräulein S., one of Natalie's maids of honor, a girl almost as beautiful as herself, but with the beauté du diable. The second was the appearance in Belgrade of Dmitri Veseljevichka, who was suspected of plotting to assassinate the Tsar. Russia demanded that the fugitive should be given up to justice, and enlisted Natalie's cooperation with this object. Milan, however, was resolute not to surrender the plotter, and turned a deaf ear to all the princess's pleadings and cajoleries. The most exciting scene followed. Natalie, abandoning entreaties, threatened and even commanded her husband to obey her. And when threats and commands equally failed, she gave way to a paroxysm of rage in which she heaped the most unbridled scorn and contempt on her husband. Thus jealousy, a thwarted will, and Milan's low pleasures combined to widen the breach between the royal couple, so recently plighted to each other in the sacred name of love, and to prepare the way for the troubled and tragic years to come. End of chapter 28 Recording by Casey E. Kennard.